Friends, do you remember the first time you became aware that not everybody believes in Christmas? Do you remember that? I remember very vividly as a, as a little boy, I, I grew up in a Christian family, right? And I kind of just took it for granted that everybody believes in Christmas. Everybody believes in Jesus and, you know, the nativity stories. And, and uh, I remember I was at a private Christian school for a few years when I was a kid growing up. And, and we were doing our annual Christmas pageant that, that Christmas season. And I was talking to one of my neighbor buddies in my neighborhood. And uh, I was sharing with him about my Christmas play and the part that I was playing and some of the songs that we were going to be singing. And, uh, and my buddy said to me, well, my dad says Christmas is just a fairy tale. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what? Like, for real? And the reality is that that was a, a shocking experience to me as a young kid to recognize that not everybody in our world today believes in Jesus. And, and not everybody believes in Christmas. It's interesting, I was reading this week, a recent Gallup poll says that 93% of Americans are going to celebrate Christmas this year. That's, that's pretty cool, right? 93% of our nation will celebrate Christmas but the poll also revealed that only 35% of Americans celebrate it for religious reasons. And even less than that, 25% celebrate it for strongly held religious reasons. And, and so the reality is, is the vast majority of people in our world don't view Christmas as a religious holiday, as of anything of spiritual significance to celebrate. They, they just oftentimes view it as just, you know, kind of a nice cultural tradition. And, and, and there's a whole variety of views that you'll see out in our world today when it comes to, to the Christmas season. There, there are those who overtly attack the idea of Christmas. These are skeptics and secularists in our culture who, who think that the cultural celebration of Christmas should be completely dismantled. In recent years, for example, many atheist organizations have, have, had, have had outright active promotions of trying to squelch the message of Christmas, or at least the, the religious influence of Christmas. For example, I saw this billboard uh, that was placed in Memphis, Tennessee a few years ago by the American Atheists, and they said, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. This was put up in major cities all around America. Uh, another billboard in a similar vein, uh, you know it's a myth. This season, celebrate reason. Right? And there are many people in our world that, that view Christmas just like that, right? Like, yeah, nice story, but it's not really true. It, you know, it's just kind of a fable or a myth at best. And, you know, let, let's celebrate reason. Come on, people, let's get real. Nobody believes in miracles anymore. Nobody believes in all that superstitious, phony baloney. Come on, let's, let's celebrate reality, right? Uh, another billboard I came across recently, just skip church. It's all fake news. And there's the story of the, the picture of the nativity scene on this particular billboard, right? It's all fake news. And, and so there are those in our culture today that, that really believe these things. That, that the message of Christmas is all phony, that it's all fake news, that the idea of miracles and the supernatural and wandering stars and angelic visitations and virgin births, this is, nobody believes this stuff anymore. 
So let's just stop pretending and focus on what is real, what is rational, what is reasonable, what is true. That's, that's, the, that's the view of many in our world today. Not everybody is as aggressive when it comes to their criticism of Christmas. For example, I came across a quote this, uh, this week by Hamant Mata. He's, a, he's an atheist that I follow. He writes a blog called The Friendly Atheist. And he is a pretty friendly guy. He's a nice guy. But he critiques and, and criticizes Christian belief. And he, he shared in a CNN article that I came across this week, he says this. He says, Christians don't own December. Even if Christmas as a Christian holiday didn't exist right now, I think there would be plenty of reason that it makes sense to take a couple weeks off at the end of the year when the weather isn't great, when everyone kind of needs a break from work. This is a nice way to just relax and spend time with your family. If it coincides with the majority's religious holiday, great. There are Christmas carols playing in my in-law's house right now, and none of us are religious. It's just kind of nice. Isn't that sweet? You know, you guys, you can believe in your hokey-pokey religious stuff, but at the end of the day, nobody really believes this. But, you know, it's just kind of nice. You know, let's take a few days off at the end of the month, and we'll get together, and we'll listen to some Christmas music. Friends, is that the reality of Christmas? That it's just kind of kind of nice? Or is there something more to the stories of the nativity that we've been given in God's Word? Is there something truly substantive that we can hold on to and believe and and, and rest our lives and our hope on? And that's the question we're going to consider this morning. Is Christmas really credible? In my experience, when it it comes to the topic of Christmas or, or Christian faith in general... Many people in our world have this idea that as Christians, we just accept the Bible and and the various stories in Scripture, stories like the nativity, the arrival of Jesus. We just accept these things on blind faith. That that we don't really have any genuine reason to believe these things. That that we're just brought up in Christian families and we're told these stories. And so we just kind of naively embrace these things as true. And, And that's what many people in our world believe about us as Christians. That Christianity is just rooted in this blind faith. It reminds me, I've shared this story with you in the past, it reminds me of the the flight home I had from Australia a number of years ago. I ended up sitting next to an atheistic professor who was traveling to the United States to to lecture, and and we started talking, and she discovered that my father and I were Christian ministers. And it was interesting, when she found out that we were Christians, the very first thing she said to us She said, you know what the problem is with you Christians? You ever heard that before? She said, the problem with you Christians is you just have faith. How many of you heard that one before, right? And there are a lot of people in our world that that think that that's what Christianity is. It's just this, you know, it's this blind faith. We're going to jump out in the dark and hope something's there to catch us. And it was interesting because when she made that comment, I, I said to this, this woman, I said, you know, it's interesting, man, that you would accuse us of having nothing but faith. I, I said, because I noticed when you got on the plane here this morning that when, when you sat down in the seat next to me, you just kind of plopped down into that chair. I said, weren't you worried? I mean, you, you didn't get down on the floor and check to make sure that that chair was sturdy and secure, that, that it was, that it was, you know, bolted down to the, to the fuselage. I mean, you, you didn't even look. 
How do you know that chair was going to support your weight and wasn't going to just collapse? I said, wow, you know, you sure had a lot of faith. And and then I asked this woman, I said, let me ask you, ma'am, have you ever met the pilot who's going to be flying us 15 hours across the Pacific Ocean today? Do you know this man? Do you know if he's qualified? Do you know if he's he's been trained and, and can fly this massive jumbo jet? She said, well, no. I said, wow, you sure have a lot of faith. And she said, well, I see your point. Right? See, friends, the thing we need to understand this morning is the issue is not faith. Every single person in the world has faith. Even atheists have faith. We all have faith and we all exercise faith on a regular basis. The question isn't faith. The question is, what are you putting your faith in? And do you have a valid and reasonable basis for what you're putting your faith in? And and I want to argue this morning that Christian belief and belief in the story of Christmas in particular, isn't based on some naive, irrational, blind faith. This isn't just some, you know, leap into the dark, hoping that this is all real. No, but Christian belief, true biblical Christianity, is about looking at the evidence, examining the evidence, and then walking confidently in the direction the evidence leads. We don't trust in Jesus and the message of Christmas purely on blind faith. We examine the reasons to believe, and then we walk confidently in the direction that that evidence points us. And so today, when it comes to the question of Christmas, right, is is Christmas credible? We need to examine the evidence. We, We need to look at, do we have good reason to believe in the Bible's stories, the accounts of Jesus' nativity? And so, when, when it comes to this topic, we're going to examine this morning the three M's. The three M's. We're going to examine the means, we're going to examine the message, and we're going to examine the motive. Where does the evidence lead? Does it, does it point us in the direction that Christmas is credible? Or, like those billboards, is this really just all a fairy tale and fake news? Where does the evidence lead? Let's start out this morning by looking at the means. This is really the fundamental issue. Is it reasonable to believe in miracles? Right? I mean, you can't ignore the reality that the nativity stories that we have in Scripture are chock full of miraculous events. And that's our secular world's primary critique of Christmas is that, well, nobody believes in miracles anymore. We don't believe in these superstitions. This stuff isn't real. I mean, angelic visitors singing songs to shepherds and, you know, stars that are moving from here to there and and virgin births come on for Pete's sake. Nobody believes that kind of stuff anymore. Right? Friends, are miracles even possible? Because if miracles aren't possible, then then all of this stuff in these nativity stores really is just a bunch of phony baloney. So is it reasonable to believe in miracles? Now, here's the thing we need to recognize this morning. It's important, first and foremost, that we understand that our secular world's denial of miracles is really not a scientific position. It's not a scientific position, but rather the denial of miracles at its heart is a philosophical position 
based on an a priori, uh, before the fact, that's what that term means, a priori, an a priori assumption of faith. Our, Our secular world doesn't deny the miraculous because there are scientific reasons to do so, but rather they do it purely on a philosophic a priori assumption of faith. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. In the 19th and 20th century, modern-day philosophers and scientists declared that God is dead. You might have heard that term before, the famous quote from German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. God is dead. And, and these modern-day scientists and philosophers said that, that we don't need to appeal to God, we don't need to appeal to the supernatural and miracles to, to make sense of everyday life, that, that we have so advanced in our science and our technology and our engineering and our medicine that we no longer need to appeal to, to myths and fairy tales to make sense of life and the world. And, and so these modern-day scientists and philosophers said that, that God does not exist. The supernatural doesn't exist. Science is adequate to explain all of reality. Now, friends, understand this. These 19th and 20th century modern scientists and philosophers, they never actually disproved God. What they did was they defined God out of existence a priori by limiting themselves to a finite three-dimensional natural world. They said, look, if we can't put something into our three-dimensional box of science, and if we can't observe it, and if we can't experiment with it, then it doesn't exist. All that exists is what we can see and observe and experiment with in our finite three-dimensional box of science. And since we can't put God and miracles and things like that into this box of science, well, we're going to rule those things out a priori. But friends, understand, in doing this, the naturalist puts themselves in a box. Because now the naturalist has to ask this question. How did we get here? Where did we come from? And you see, there's only two possible answers to that question. We're either the product of an intelligent designer, a creator God, or we are the product of a whole series of random chance events in the, in the history of our cosmos. There's no third option. In fact, you can't even think of a third option this morning. And so the problem with the naturalistic scientists and philosophers is they ruled out the possibility of God a priori, and then they asked the question, well, where did we come from? And now they're left with only one possibility, that somehow we arrived by chance. Now, friends, this is a really incredible position to be in. See, understand, to to say that the universe is simply the result of a whole series of random chance events, that's not a scientific viewpoint. Rather, that's a philosophical viewpoint. How did we get here? Well, well, scientists and philosophers say that 13.8 billion years ago, the universe exploded into existence out of nothing. Well, you have to ask yourself some basic questions here at this point, right? Like, like number one, how does nothing explode? And number two, how does everything in the universe come from nothing? See, understand, the naturalistic worldview, that's not a scientific position. 
Nobody can go back in time and see and observe and experiment with the origins of the universe. They believe that by faith because there's no other option than to acknowledge the possibility of a creator God. It, it reminds me of a conversation I had a few years ago with a, an atheistic professor here in the Twin Cities. I had been on a radio show here uh, talking about some of the scientific evidence for intelligent design. And, and uh, I got an email later that week from uh, a professor. He was an atheistic evolutionary professor. And he said, hey, Jason, I heard you on the radio. I, I'd be interested in talking with you sometime. So we met up at a local Starbucks. And uh, we started talking. And in the midst of our conversation, it was interesting, he, he made this comment. He said, Jason, you know what the problem is with you Christians? I said, I've, I can probably guess what you're going to say. And he said, the problem with you Christians is you just have faith. And, and I said to this gentleman, I said, well, sir, you know, that's, that's interesting that you would say that. Because you just shared with me that as an atheistic professor of evolution, you believe that the universe exploded into existence 13.8 billion years ago in, in what is called the Big Bang. And, and I asked this gentleman, I said, can I just ask you two questions? I said to this man, I said, sir, can you explain to me, number one, how does nothing explode? And, and how does everything in the universe come from nothing? And friends, I kid you not, this was his response. He says, well, Jason, we have to assume by faith that somehow these things took place. I said, are you kidding me? I said five minutes ago, you accused me as a Christian of having nothing but faith, and yet you just admit that your whole naturalistic worldview is based on a huge leap of faith. That, that nothing can explode and the whole universe can, can come out of nothing. I said, that's incredible. It sure takes a lot of faith to believe in atheism, right? See, the reality is, friends, it's like Glenn Scrivener says, the, the British apologist. He says, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Choose your miracle. Again, the issue isn't faith. It's not a question of faith. Everyone has faith. The real issue is what are you putting your faith in and do you have a valid and reasonable basis for your faith? Now, as Christians, we choose to believe in a supernatural creation because we believe this is where the evidence leads. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, 18 through 20, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says that men and women are without excuse because we can know that there is a God by what we see in creation. Friends, what do we observe when we look at the natural world? We see things like design. We see things like order. 
We see things like intelligence and beauty and emotions like love. Friends, please understand, time, chance, and inorganic molecules can't produce these things. These things are the product of intelligence, of a master designer, a creator. And so for us as Christians, we believe that the evidence that we see in the natural world points strongly to a creator God. Now, friends, please please understand, if a creator God exists, then supernatural miracles, miracles like those found in the nativity stories, are absolutely possible. And furthermore, if God is personal and loving, as the Bible declares, then not only are miracles possible, but they are probable. Because we would expect to see a loving, sovereign God intervening supernaturally in His creation for the sake of His will and plans for His people. Miracles aren't only possible, they're probable if there really is a Creator. And so again, when it comes to the question of the miracles of Christmas, we believe them on faith, but this isn't an irrational, blind faith. Rather, it's a faith that's rooted in many valid and credible reasons to believe. So, so we have the means, the question of the means, we, we can see that it certainly is credible to believe in miracles. It's at least equally credible to the alternative, right? Choose your miracle. The universe exploded into existence out of nothing, or there is a supernatural God who intervenes in His creation. Choose your miracle. But, but what about the message? Can we trust the message? How, how do we know that the message of Christmas that's been given to us in the Bible, how do we know that the message is true? That's an important question, right? Atheist scholar Richard Dawkins, right, the, the prominent atheist and critic of Christianity, he says, look, we can't trust the New Testament stories. He says the New Testament was written so long ago over such a broad span of time that that it's basically like the children's game of telephone. That's Richard Dawkins' argument. He says, yeah, Jesus might have been a real person and he maybe was a, a good teacher of morality, but what happened was there was so much time between the life of Jesus and when the Gospels and the New Testament were written that all kinds of myths and legends began to accrue about his life. And so what happened is is you start with a true story about a good Jewish teacher in Galilee, and over time his followers started adding a miracle here, uh, another miracle there, and as you get further down the road, pretty soon this guy who was just a good teacher turns into the supernatural son of God who walks around doing miracles. And, And that's his argument, that this is just a bunch of mythology that accrued over time. Well, how do we counter such claims, friends? Do we have reasons to believe in the message of Christmas? Well, I want to argue this morning that we have tremendous reasons to believe that the New Testament is true. I I want us to use this acronym of TRUE to, to help us understand some of the reasons we have to be confident that the message of Christmas really is true. Take, for example, the T, which stands for time. The T, which stands for time. The reality is, friends, there just wasn't enough time 
for the gospel stories to be mythologized. There wasn't enough time for, for mythology and legend to, to creep into the New Testament. Let, let's look at the dates of the Gospels, for example. Very interesting. Do you know that all four Gospels were written before the end of the first century? Okay, before the first hundred years, A.D. They were all written in the first century. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written prior to 70 A.D., we know that because the Jerusalem and the Jewish temple was completely destroyed by the Romans. It was the most significant event in the first century, and none of the gospel authors mention it. Why would they ignore the, the most cataclysmic event in the history of the Jewish faith? Right? And so scholars believe that one of the reasons they didn't talk about that is because they had already written their gospels before that took place in 70 A.D. The Gospel of Luke was likely written before 64 A.D. How do we know that? Well, friends, remember, Luke, who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, he wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. They were a two-part series. And if you remember, Acts 28, the end of the Book of Acts, ends with the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome. We know that Paul was executed by the Roman Emperor Nero probably around 65 A.D., which means that Luke would have had to have finished both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts before 65 AD, probably 64 or earlier. Now, interestingly, we know also that Matthew and Luke borrowed from the Gospel of Mark. There, there are things that they share in their accounts of Jesus' life and ministry that are clearly pulled from the Gospel of Mark. Now, that means that Mark had to have been written earlier than 64 A.D. If these other Gospels are borrowing from Mark, that means Mark was around earlier. Some scholars say that Mark may have been around as early as 40 A.D., the 40s A.D. Now, why is this all significant? Well, friends, understand this. Jesus died in 30 A.D. Jesus died in 30 A.D., that means that three-fourths of the Gospels were written within 40 years of Jesus' earthly ministry. And what that means is that there were too many eyewitnesses still around for legends and mythology to accrue. Right? The idea that the Gospels over time were added to with all these myths and legends about Jesus... That's a great idea, except there were too many eyewitnesses around who would say, no, that's not the reality. That's not how it happened. I was there. I saw it. If the Gospels had been written like two, three hundred, four hundred years later, yet then yes, maybe you could make the case that legends and myths began to pile up in the New Testament stories. But the truth is the Gospels were all written far too early when many of the eyewitnesses to these events were still alive. This would be a similar situation, for example, like if somebody started writing in, in the sports media today that the Minnesota Vikings won four Super Bowls in the 1970s. Right? Like, we laugh at that idea because most of us were alive and most of us know that the Vikings didn't win four Super Bowls 40 years ago in the 1970s. In fact, they lost four Super Bowls. Can you imagine cheering for a team that hasn't won a Super Bowl in 45? I can't even fathom that. But, but like if somebody came along and said, hey, Jason, you know, the, the Vikings won the Super Bowl in 1977. 
And they started promoting that idea and trying to convince people of that idea. We would all say, no, that's ridiculous. In fact, there are many people today, probably even some here, who not only remember the 1977 Super Bowl, that the Vikings lost to the Raiders 32-14. to Some of you probably even remember details about the game. Some of you might have even been at the game. Now, I was too young to remember that game. I was only two years old when that game was played. But here's the thing. I know people who played in the game. I grew up with Jay Foreman. He was one of my good buddies growing up, the son of Chuck Foreman, who played in the Super Bowl. I I can talk to Chuck today and confirm that they lost that game. My parents were good friends with Jeff and Don Seaman, Jeff Seaman, who's probably the greatest linebacker in Viking history. I could get on the phone right now with Jeff Seaman and have him confirm for us, I played in the game, I was there. Yeah, sadly, we lost, right? The problem is, there hasn't been enough time. The witnesses are still with us. The people who were in the game are still alive. And this is the same thing that we have when we look at the Gospels. There just wasn't enough time for legends to accrue about Jesus. Now let's look at the R. What does the R stand for? The R stands for reports that are accurate. Friends, when we read the New Testament... When we read the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, what do we find? We find reports that are historically, archaeologically, and geographically accurate. It's incredible the details in the New Testament that have been corroborated by historians, archaeology that has substantiated things recorded in the New Testament. In fact, no archaeological find to date has discounted anything in the New Testament. It's only corroborated the stories of the New Testament. Geographically, the places mentioned in the New Testament have all been confirmed as being real, genuine places. This is really incredible, especially in light of other religious holy books that are out there. For example, the Quran of Islam, which contains all kinds of historical errors. Or you can look at the Book of Mormon, for example. The Mormons claim that the Book of Mormon is a second testament of Jesus Christ. That after he he left his ministry in Israel, he came over to the North American continent where he ministered to two Native American tribes called the Nephites and the Lamanites. And they have this whole story about Jesus' ministry here. And they mention peoples and places and cities and great battles. And yet there's no evidence anywhere in history for anything in the Book of Mormon. In fact, I've been telling Mormons for over 30 years, I'll become a Mormon tomorrow if you can produce for me a map of anything mentioned in the Book of Mormon. It's just completely made up. But again, friends, that's a very different thing from what we have in the Gospel accounts in the New Testament. Historical, archaeological, geographical reliability. Take the Gospel of Luke, for example. Luke, who I mentioned earlier, Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was a Gentile convert to Christianity. He was a doctor and a historian, and he wrote for us an incredible account of Jesus' life and ministry and the, the advancement of the early church. Luke, in his gospel, opens his gospel, letting us know that he was writing to a Gentile official by the name of Theophilus in order that he might give him an orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ. 
That was his goal. He wanted to provide an orderly account of what happened in Jesus' life and ministry so that Theophilus and others could have confidence that these things were true. And look at Luke as a historian. Luke is an incredible historian. In fact, here are just about a half dozen historical realities that Luke mentions that have all been confirmed by other non-biblical sources. Luke was an impeccable historian. He mentions people. He mentions places. He mentions details that unless somebody was being very precise and accurate, you wouldn't expect these things to be known. And again, interestingly, all of this has been confirmed by by non-biblical sources. For example, Josephus, the Jewish historian employed by the Roman emperor, writing in about 93 AD in his Antiquities, Josephus mentions all of these things years after Luke mentioned them. But again, this is an extra-biblical reference corroborating the historical testimony of Luke. Luke was a great historian. Very meticulous in his detail. Additionally, Luke goes on in his gospel and in the book of Acts, he mentions 32 different countries. He mentions 52 different cities. He mentions nine islands. Again, all with perfect accuracy and precision. Luke wasn't making things up. He was giving us, as he himself explained, an orderly account of the history. It's very interesting, some of the greatest scholars in the history of the world, what, what they say about Luke as a historian. For example, F.F. F. Bruce, professor of biblical criticism and exegesis at University of Manchester in the UK, he says Luke's record entitles him to be regarded as a writer of habitual accuracy. E.M. Blakelock, chair of classics at Auckland University in New Zealand, he says Luke is a consummate historian to be ranked among to be ranked in his own right with great writers Sir William Mitchell Ramsey Regis professor of humanities at Aberdeen in Scotland he says Luke is a historian of the first rank one of the greatest so again friends this is just one example from the gospels that we have a very credible report of true history so so we can be confident we, we have the T, the time issue. We have reports that are historically accurate. What about the U? The U stands for unrivaled manuscript evidence. Now, not only do we have historically accurate reports, but we have an abundance of historically accurate reports. Now, why is this abundance of early manuscripts important? It's important because it shows us consistency and continuity. In other words, the telephone game idea, that that the Gospels changed over time, that legends began to creep in, we know that that's not true because of all of the early manuscripts that we found. In fact, today, scholars have found over 5,300 partial and complete Greek New Testament manuscripts dating uh, from, from the first century, the time of Christ, up to around the 1500s. It's very interesting when you start to look into these manuscripts. Now again, these aren't full books. Some of them are, but some of them are just small portions, like little scraps of paper that we found. But there are over 5,300 of these ancient Greek manuscripts, some partial, some complete. But interestingly, 889 of these New Testament manuscripts 
date to the first millennium, so the first thousand years after Christ. Roughly 50 of these manuscripts date to within the first three centuries after Christ. 19 of them date to the second century after Christ. So, so this is the 100s A.D., right? We have 19 of these Greek manuscripts that date to the, the 100s. And, and this is where I think is, this is really fascinating. Historical evidence suggests that some of Paul's original letters may have survived into the late 2nd century. For example, the early church father, Tertullian, writing in 190 A.D., Tertullian says in one of his letters that you can still go to Hierapolis in Asia Minor and read Paul's original writings. They were still around almost 200 years after they were written. Interestingly, Bishop Peter of Alexandria, he tells us in one of his letters, he says that the Gospel of John survived into the early 4th century, the original he writes in 303 A.D., okay, like 300 years after the time of Jesus. He says you can still go to Ephesus today and read the original Gospel of John. That's amazing. These letters were around, these Gospels were around for hundreds of years. Why is that important? It's important because if anyone was trying to make stories up about Jesus, all you had to do was go to Ephesus and read the original because it was still there, you could check on the history and see that these aren't myths that have been added, stories that have been added, legends that have been added. No, the originals were still around for sometimes upwards of 200 years to corroborate the truth of the testimony of the gospel writers. I, I think that's fascinating. Now, not only that, when we look at our modern-day translations of the New Testament and compare them to these ancient manuscripts... What we discover is 99% consistency. In other words, the gospel stories haven't been changed over the years. The, the, the Bible that we have today is corroborated by these early manuscripts showing consistency, continuity, speaking to its credibility. Friends, we have great reasons to believe. In fact, F.F. Bruce, who I quoted earlier, he says this, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. He says no other ancient book has anything like such early and plentiful testimony to its text. And no unbiased scholar would deny that the text that has come down to us is substantially sound. Friends, we have great reasons to believe so we've seen the T, the time. We've seen the R, reports that are historically accurate. We've seen the U, unrivaled manuscript evidence. What does the E stand for? The E stands for extra-biblical attestation. This is really fascinating to me because this shows us that there is a lot we can know about Jesus from sources outside of the Bible. In fact, I would argue even if we didn't have the Bible, we could not only know a lot about Jesus, but we could know enough to still have faith that he is who the gospel writers claim him to be. For example, the Jewish historian Josephus, again, writing in 93 AD, under the employ of the Roman Empire. Josephus, in his antiquities, he tells us this about Jesus in the early church. He, he records a guy named James, 
who was the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. Those are his own words, Josephus' words. He says James was stoned to death by the high priest in 62 AD. This is, this is an extra-biblical record. Josephus tells us that Jesus performed miracles, that he, was one, that he would win over Jews and Gentiles, that, that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, that he rose from the grave three days later. He speaks about the growth and spread of the early church. We have other historians, like the Roman historian Tacitus, writing in 105 to 109 AD. The Roman historian Tacitus, he tells us that Christians were persecuted by Nero and Rome, that Jesus was put to death by Pontius Pilate in Judea during the reign of Tiberius. Again, everything that we have corroborated in the New Testament, that Christians embraced pernicious superstitions. What were these superstitions, according to the Romans, that the Christians embraced? The idea that Jesus was God in flesh, the idea that he rose from the grave. Okay? This is all corroboration of what the New Testament tells us. We, we have, for example, Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman governor in Asia Minor. Remember First Peter that we just studied? Peter was writing to the churches in Asia Minor. This guy was the governor in that region. Pliny tells us about Christian persecution taking place in Asia Minor. Again, corroborating what we just studied in the book of First Peter, right? He, he talks about Christians who refused to worship the emperor, that they would meet on a particular morning of the week to worship and sing hymns to Christ as to a god. He says there were two women that he had tortured who were called deaconesses by these Christians. And then he speaks of Christianity spreading to all ages and ranks and of both sexes. These are all extra-biblical accounts of the early church, friends. Now look at Even if we didn't have the New Testament, what can we know about Jesus from these extra-biblical sources? We can know, for example, that there was a guy named Jesus in the first century in Israel who was killed by Pontius Pilate under the reign of the emperor Tiberius, and that some of his followers worshipped him as a god, calling him the Christ, that they would sing hymns and pray to him, that they were willing to go to their deaths because of their belief in him. I mean, these are incredible facts about Jesus in the early church that we can know even apart from the biblical evidence. Again, friends, I think we have incredible reason to believe that the New Testament is true. And given all these factors, we can absolutely declare that the story of Christmas, the, the nativity, the message of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's certainly credible and it's definitely not a fairy tale. It's only a naturalistic bias that would say otherwise. We have great reasons to believe. Friends, as I shared earlier, being a Christian isn't about accepting these stories on blind faith. It's about looking at the evidence and then walking confidently in the direction the evidence leads. But there's one last M I want to touch on briefly this morning, and that's the question of the motive. Why was the incarnation necessary? Well, why, why did Jesus come? It's very interesting if we look at that earliest gospel, the first gospel written, the gospel of Mark. Again, some scholars say Mark might have been written as early as 10 to 15 years after the life and ministry of Jesus. 
When we look at the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, the very first words that Mark records of Jesus, what does Jesus say? His very first words in the earliest Gospel. Mark tells us that Jesus showed up in Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the Gospel, the good news. Why did Jesus come? What was the motive? Why was the incarnation necessary? Jesus came and his message to the world was repent and believe the good news. The word repent means to turn, to to make a 180 degree change of course. Why would we need to repent? What, what, What do we need to repent of? What do we need to turn around from? Well, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, in Romans 3.23, tells us that that all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 3.10, Paul tells us there is no one righteous. No, not one. And so God, in His great love for us, He looked down on a world that He created, a world that He made. He saw us floundering in our sin and our rebellion. He knew that there was no way that we could ever reconcile ourselves to Him in His holiness, in His righteousness, that we were fundamentally broken and stained by the reality of sin. And so God, in His great love, He gave us a gift. The gift of the good news. The gift of Christmas. John 3.16 shares the meaning of this gift, the message of this gift. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but will have eternal life. That's what Christmas is all about, friends. That's the motive. God so desired a relationship with you that He sent His Son into this world to convey the good news. He said, repent. Turn from your sin. Accept the good news of the Gospel. Put your hope and trust in Me. And you can be forgiven. You can come back into a right relationship with God. And you can know life and life abundant. Friends, that's why we celebrate Christmas. That's the true gift of Christmas. And so the only question we have left to ask this morning is this. Have you received the gift? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? See, I think Christmas is certainly credible. But we're left with the question, have I received the good news of Jesus as my own? That's all that ultimately matters, friends. To know God in a personal way through His Son, Jesus Christ. To be washed and cleansed of your sins. And to experience life and life abundant in Him. Don't miss out on the good news of Christmas this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank You so much for this recognition that we have great reasons to believe in the story of Christmas. That the message of the Gospel is is truly credible. And that we can trust and affirm that that You are the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who has come to offer us the gift of new life and reconciliation with God. Lord, we praise You for that gift. And this morning I pray that none of us here or no one watching online would miss out on the joy of receiving the gift of new life through the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ.
And Lord, may we continue as your people to shine brightly the truth of the gospel as we go out into the world this week. May we share with our friends and loved ones and our neighbors and our co-workers the, the true meaning of Christmas. That God so loved us that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but can have everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of Christmas. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. And again, if any of you would like prayer today, some of our elders will be here at the front of the platform. Our elders and Stephen ministers, they'd love to pray with you. Our benediction comes from Romans 15, verse 13. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing this Christmas season, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you and have a great week. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.